0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Flight Sim Edge. My name is Griffin, and you have found the podcast that deals with everything related to flight simulation, from hardware to software to peripherals to add-ons. This is the place. Cockpit building, you name it. We try to address it sooner or later, (laughs) and uh, we hit a few obscure things along the way. This is Episode 8, Season 2. It is May 3rd, 11 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on a beautiful night in Tampa Bay, USA. And everyone is welcome. If you're new to the program, it probably means that you found us by accident. We don't do any kind of promotion. Uh, We don't do any multimedia promotion. We're not sponsored by anybody. Um, Nothing like that. So it probably was just happenstance that you guys uh, came across this show. And welcome, welcome to all of you. For my return uh, listeners, as always, welcome home. And get a comfortable place to sit down. Get a drink of your choice. I'm... uh, Rockin' Cherry Diet Coke, and it has a little bit of uh, extra stuff on it, being at 11 o'clock p.m. Ah, good. And uh, we are just getting started on a feature-rich show. And it's feature-rich because tonight marks the first program that we have our first flight sim adventure and you guys are going to love it. It's actually a gorgeous, gorgeous flight. Now I know I said I was going to go ahead and record it while I was taking the flight but what I found was because I'm not streaming and I don't have you know uh, multiple people uh, leaving comments there's really nothing to talk about for large parts of the flight and uh so it it didn't it didn't make for good listening because there was a lot of uh, you know blocks of silence, if you will, and uh, so I'm gonna give you the parameters of the flight, give you my thoughts on uh, I have some notes and and um what I was feeling when I when I did it, and uh, then I want you guys to fly it and see if you experience specially. This is going to be the thing that really, one of the things that really puts Microsoft Flight Simulator out there. I mean, this is not going to be the same experience in any other flight simulator. It just isn't. But I challenge those that fly something other than Microsoft Flight Simulator um, to go ahead and fly it. Uh, you probably will not have the same airframe that uh, we are going to fly in Microsoft Flight Simulator. Um, and uh, it is a simple uh, aircraft, but uh, a really cool one. And we're going to fly it by stick this time, this first one. We're going to get uh, you know, our, our chops, uh, our flying chops going by uh, avoiding um, using any kind of autopilot We're going to fly this baby all the way. And uh, look, I love uh, Automatic Pilot as much as the rest of you guys out there. And we're going to have multiple flights. And we're going to use Autopilot all the time. But I thought in this first one, this sort of inaugural flight, that uh, we do it a little bit the old-fashioned way. And that's all the hint I'm going to give you. That's going to be the last part of the program and uh, we're going to talk a few, about a few things first. Um, I'm going to talk about a situation that uh, we've talked about in the past um, recently, and uh, there's some interesting updates that uh, that are um, on the surface, don't seem to be much, but if you read between the lines it could have huge implications um, for those that uh, have purchased or are thinking of purchasing the short term uh an nvidia product um then we're going to talk about um uh surge protection it's an important topic and um it's it's a very misunderstood topic um so uh there's a lot of people that uh and correctly so will say you know i don't buy flight simulators well not correctly so um i don't buy flight simulate i don't buy uh surge protectors because they can't withstand a direct hit for, by lightning. That part is true. But then, because they don't understand what surge protection means and what a surge is, they don't buy it. They're like, well, if it's not gonna protect me from a lightning strike, there's no point in buying it. And um, that is the silly part that, uh, and the myth we're gonna disband uh, um, upcoming in this program. Now, I live in the Tampa Bay area. Um, It was reported at one time during parts of the year. I don't know if that is accurate anymore, Um, but Tampa got more lightning than any place in the world. I don't know if that is indeed true, but I do know this. We get tons of lightning. They say it's a meteorological phenomenon because we're a peninsula within a peninsula. In other words, the state of Florida is surrounded by... uh, uh, water on three sides. And then Tampa, uh, towards the center of the state on the west coast, um, is also surrounded by water by three sides. So it makes for an interesting dynamic. That's I've heard that be a, a, a possible explanation for the amount of lightning we get, but um, we get tons of it and it affects our equipment. Uh, my equipment has been affected, not only recently with the, with the uh, destruction of my previous computer system and, and the uh, reason why I have this computer system right here, but stereos, TVs, uh, all throughout my life living in the, in the Florida area. So it's a serious problem, it's an expensive problem, and it's one that needs to be addressed. But you don't have to live in a super lightning zone to be affected. By this, you could have uh, live in a small providence uh, where maybe you don't have reliable power, you could be living in an old building um, you could uh, live in a, a heavily winter uh, snow prone area and um, power lines go down and that creates uh, um, um, power relay boxes uh, uh, spiking out and sending surges through the lines so There's a lot of reasons why this is an important topic and an important subject, and we're going to tackle it from top to bottom. And then after that, we are going to go on our first flight sim adventure in Microsoft Flight Simulator. You guys uh, have been um, spending a lot of time and probably money and effort getting your computer systems uh, up to speed to be able to enjoy Microsoft Flight Simulator. And so we're going to go on a shared adventure. And if you're not in Microsoft Flight Simulator, I invite you to go ahead and and take the flight. I think it's going to be something that's uh, pleasurable and exciting, but uh, oh, it it it's not going to be as gorgeous. I can tell you that. But in any case, everyone is welcome and everyone is welcome to participate. I look forward to having a feature-rich eighth episode, and uh, I will see you on the flip side, wheels up. So yes, it's 11 o'clock at night, and I thought I'd relax a little bit. I have a uh, some cherry Coke, and with a little bit of hint of uh, Jim Bean, just a hint, not a lot, but... Uh, oh. It is good. <laughs> it is really good. So, um let's talk about uh as you know in previous episodes I talk about uh in the last episode um the VRAM temperatures um rising um to catastrophic levels. There's no other word to use uh as far as heat goes. Um a uh 3080 uh, and a 3090 in a case under um, a fairly rigorous load. And I'm not just talking about mining, I'm talking about video production work, video rendering, um, um, high graphic uh, games, playing at long stints, um, and We said and we determined that Microsoft Flight Simulator fits right into that danger zone. One of the things that it's vulnerable to, for instance, is weather simulation, meteorological simulation. And that's something that Flight Simulator does. And if you're going on a four or five or six hour flight, that's a lot of work. And that's where you're going to see your temperatures rise and where you're going to see, believe it or not, the life of your card diminish greatly. Now, if you have a GPU and you do a lot of work with it, um, the life expectancy of that card is going to be smaller than somebody that does uh, perhaps just internet surfing and light gaming. So, you know, um, that's why people, when you see used ones for sale, like on eBay, they'll say, oh, I didn't use it that much, or it was just uh, used in eSports and stuff like that. And you're always taking a chance that the life expectancy of the card that you buy is not going to be um, as lengthy as, as a new card. That's obvious, but it could be diminished greatly. Well with these cards, the 3080s and the 3090s, um, it can be greatly diminished. There has been talk, um, that some of these cards under heavy loads are only lasting four or five or six months. And not only that, when I say lasting, it doesn't mean that the card is completely broken, but the card can no longer perform at its expected level in any way, um, as, as, uh, as it could when it was in the box. So um you don't have to have a broken card that you don't get a picture on. Um and that's the thing. A lot of these people that aren't, you know, uh real tech savvy, they they're just standard computer users, they'll buy a used card at a great price. This was before the whole market that we're in now. And they plug it in and they get a picture and they think everything's fine. But that card might only be running um uh, at eighty or or 70, 80, you know, um, percent proficiency, which means you're losing, you know, twenty or thirty percent of the maximum ability of that card when it was new. So, um, but uh, and but that usually doesn't happen for multiple years down the road. But what they're finding is with the thirty eighties and thirty nineties, because the VRAM temps are so high. We're talking above 120 C. Um, in a, uh, you know, in a in a standard computer computer case, we're we're talking about 94 degrees C, 95 degrees C. In an open test bed, bench environment, um, Micron, which worked with the 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 formation of this VRAM, and this is not a standard that's, uh, that's, that's, that's recognized by, by um, um, the industry, if you will. This is GDDR6X, and the standard is GDDR6. There's no X. And GDR5 and GDDR4, and it goes down from there. And there's various different memory configurations. There's a lot of them, but they are standard. They are an industry standard. You can measure them, know what to expect from them. This is a proprietary memory solution that they came up with for the 3080s and the 3090s, and they're having issues with them so what's new we've talked about this uh in depth in the previous episode and we talked about that uh, a lot of the high-end upper level tech tubers are not covering the story uh not only are they not covering the story in a way that it that that it should they're not covering it period it's the lower tier um smaller niche channels that are covering it and great detail, and they're very distressed about what they're seeing, and their viewers are very distressed. And so you're seeing programs that, uh, you know, one of the things that we talked about was, well, maybe people aren't, maybe the big tech tubers aren't doing because it's not a subject matter that people are interested in. Well, these guys are getting 33,000 views, 11,000 views, 10,000 and 6,000 views relatively small channels are getting higher views than they normally do in their typical episodes because there is so much interest in the subject matter. And I would say there's interest in the subject matter because people are experiencing this at home and they're probably frustrated that it's not being talked about. Now, there are some trade magazines and these are not Um, open publications, so that's why I hesitate to use the titles, um, that are talking about also um, the performance level of these cards when it comes to uh, heat. And one of these trade magazines uh, was writing an article about what's called a server farm. And a server farm is basically a vast complex that has servers that do different things, that test different parameters of different things. And one of the things that part of this server farm was testing was uh, meteorological simulation, how to simulate weather conditions. And the cards attached to that experiment, uh, for lack of a better word, um, were experiencing very high... VRAM heat levels, and those cards were predominantly 3080s and 3090s. Now, the 3070 and the 3060 does not use GDDR6, and they're not experiencing the VRAM junction temperatures rising to these high degrees. But the 3080s and the 3090s, and I would suspect the 3080 Ti's when they are released and in the marketplace, are as well. So what is new? Did, they, did people start covering it? No, but they are covering something else. NVIDIA is re-releasing a lot of 3080s and 3090s. And they're calling it a refresh. I call that bad news because if that hardware refresh has anything to do with VRAM temperatures, that means there's not a software or even firmware solution to this problem. And it means that a lot of the people that have 3080s and 3090s, to coin a phrase, are SOL. There's not going to be an update that could just go out there and fix it. And that was was my suspicion because I said to you guys, if there's an update that can fix this, they would have done it. They would have released it. Maybe they wouldn't have told you what was in the update. They would have said it was an update for this or an update for that. But have that fix in that update so that most of the 3080s and 3090s, excuse me, would get it and then be running, you know, normal VRAM temperatures so I think uh, I think it's interesting news all the way around and there was a uh, update you know you might be hearing that uh, Nvidia is uh, um, I'm sorry that uh, Intel is uh, chips are, um. You know, not as bad as you thought, and you know the the, some people are kind of swinging the pendulum in the in the opposite direction and saying that they are, the better performing chips. Let me tell you something, I, and I know it's a matter of trust, and it's easy to just say it my ear is to the ground in a lot of tech industries and everyone is saying that intel is in big trouble not only that not only are the 11th gen chips are in trouble alder lake which is the 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 next generation of chip that's supposed to be released within this year is not performing at the level intel thought that those chips were going to perform well Sometimes you have high expectations when it comes to research and development and manufacturing, and the reality is something different. It happens to the best of corporations. But guys, this is like 40% less than what they were expecting. That, if it's anywhere near that, would be an unmitigated disaster, an absolute Travesty. Meanwhile, AMD continues to strive. Their recent release um, in the Adrenaline software update. Now, how how updates work, okay, and there are a lot of tech tubers, I won't say a lot, there are some tech tubers that say, you know, drivers are very tricky with Radeon cards. You got to. It's hard to determine what where to get the, the, the proper driver and the driver update, and you can brick your uh, graphics card if you don't update it properly. Look, all you have to do they made it as easy as possible is have adrenaline software that's a free download, it's a few minutes. and when you update the adrenaline software, you're updating your Radeon card. It's that simple. The software detects what Radeon card you have (coughs) and applies the proper drivers to that card. The latest driver set Is giving Radeon cards a, the number's staggering, so I I don't know what to tell you. A 72% TDP improvement, power draw improvement, while the card is at idle. which is gonna translate into improvements while the card is working. It probably won't be 72%. But at idle, it's 72% more efficient after this driver update. And this is a card that wasn't, you know, sucking huge amounts of of unnecessary power to begin with. It was still under what the NVIDIA products uh, power draw was. The driver's updates for the Radeon cards are absolutely amazing. Every time I get a driver update, it's like I bought a new card. I mean, I'm exaggerating, but the performance level is significantly improved with every update. And people are still testing these cards versus the NVIDIA cards at their original spec that they were released at. In other words, the the drivers are not up to date. And there has been talk within the industry with that. And why is that taking place? Is that something that was always done? No. It's something that's recently been happening. So they can honestly go on, you know, their channel and say, Well, when you compare an NVIDIA founder or when you compare a a Radeon Founders Edition uh, 6800 XT against a blah, blee, blue, or blow, this is the result. But what they don't tell you is we're three drivers later and that wouldn't be the result. That card would blow the comparison card away. That's why I, even whether you're an NVIDIA fan or a Radeon fan, AMD fan, I never look at comparisons when the hardware first comes out. I mean, I do, to say that I don't is is inaccurate, but I understand that the card that's coming out of the box that's being compared and benchmarked and everything else is not where that card is going to be a month or two months from that, especially with AMD. AMD, they just never quit with the drivers. And people are saying, well, maybe that's because you know, the card wasn't that good to begin with. That's not true. The Radeon cards, this card performed excellent out of the box, but it's even better now. And it's even better, you know, with the, as I said before, with smart access bar support update, Uh, enacted, I should say. So why is there such a drastic improvement? A piece of technology has to be in the world for a little while. That's true with everything from airframes airliner airframes to, uh, you know, telephones, cell phones, smartphones. They have to be out in the world. They have to experience real world usage before you understand how that piece of technology is really working and then make changes and adaptations to it. to to improve its performance. I really think that, now uh, the uh, NVIDIA software, um, NVIDIA Experience, I believe it's called, I haven't used it in so long, I forgot the name of it. Just, I don't mean to sound crass or, 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 or you know, uh, snarky, but uh, yeah, just I, I just forgot the name of it because it's not on my screen and I'm not clicking it every week or so. Their updates were uh, fairly regular, but it usually dealt with like an update within a game, within a title. You know, they were very specific updates. There wasn't huge technological updates um, that were that were really experienced. Now, sometimes it would be like you know it works. You know this update allows it to work smoother with a CPU or something like that, which would be a significant update. I'm just you know speaking off the top of my head. There would be hardware, you know, firmware updates that were significant, but they didn't reinvent the card like the amd updates are and i think that's because amd is very very diligent and very hyper aware of their customer base and what they're experiencing and when they experience an issue or even when they experience this is my results you know The AMD guys are like, I bet we can improve those results. And then they do that, and then they send it out. And I think AMD, within the context of Microsoft Flight Simulator, because AMD is the architecture that the Xbox Series X is based on, and Microsoft Flight Simulator is ready, poised, to come out with its release um, for the Xbox Series X, that we are going to see significant improvements from all different angles from the, 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 the simulator programmers to Microsoft, uh, as a, an overall environment to, to from AMD, um, as designers of the, of the architecture. And, um, so, uh, The updates have just been amazing. They really have been amazing. And um, I've been quite impressed. Now, another thing that AMD has done, and this illustrates how even tech tubers that live and breathe in this industry could understand technological issues very, very well. But that's only half the story. The other half is business. One of the things that AMD has done is they released a CPU that's going to be a low-end CPU. I don't know what, how, what the price point of the CPU is. Probably under $100. You know, it is a fairly low-performing chip, but it is the exact same architecture that is in the Xbox Series X. It's basically an Xbox Series X CPU. And it's going to be used for like, um, low-end kind of like, maybe like tablet kind of devices. And um, But the chip is going to be available, supposedly, for, for desktops. And um, good old gamer specifically, but there are other, Tech tubers as well, um, got very upset when they read this and saw this because they said it's just the CPU. If they would have released the architecture that included the video that an Xbox Series X has, you could have a low-priced PC that has the graphic power, of an Xbox Series X. Boy, wouldn't that help people out in this market where GPUs are so expensive. But they don't want to do that. They want you to buy the GPUs and that's why they didn't do that. And, you know, to hell with the gamer. It's all about profits. Well, and I'm paraphrasing greatly, but a good old gamer did have a few, more than a few complaints and, and, and said some derogatory things towards AMD. And it struck me, I was gobsmacked that he could understand the technological aspect. He's a, I like his channel very much and he's amazing at, uh, um, being in the world of retro gaming and building PC systems that can push those retro games. He, what his channel does is, is very good. And usually his reviews of latest uh, and newest uh, hardware in the tech industry um, related to gaming is, is very good. But he and others that have followed the bandwagon of this, and I think this stems from an article I don't know the magazine um, that was written in a magazine uh, in which basically the article was was bringing this out and saying, you know, boy, would have this been a great relief to gamers had it had the, because it has the processing um, of of the uh, Xbox Series X, that it have the graphics solution the embedded Radeon technology to to do that and and you know what it would mean that you don't have to have a a discrete graphics card and be able to run these high level graphics and you know everyone is just so very disappointed that that's the case so here's my little rant (laughs) on that they probably couldn't. There's these things called contracts. And they stipulate what and what cannot be done within the environment of what's being created with that company and what is outside of the environment of what's created by um, you and that that company that you're partnership up. Do you think Microsoft wants people to be able to build a $300 PC that can compete with the computing and graphic power of an Xbox Series X? The answer to that would be no, (laughs) they wouldn't. And so it's probably contractual that AMD cannot present the GPU-like experiences with the CPU. They already... Now, nobody was expecting these chips. These weren't chips waited for with bated breath. It was more or less a surprise when they announced that these chips will be coming out in the near future. But they... That was probably determined with Microsoft more than a year ago you know AMD probably said we'd like to come out with a chip that has the same um, computing power as the chips that we're designing for the for the Xbox Series X and Microsoft probably said you know counteracted that and said okay but you can't do it until eight or nine months after the Xbox Series X has been released. You certainly can't do it before the release of the Xbox Series X 1. And two, it can't be paired with the graphics solution that the Xbox Series X has. And AMD agreed to that. And that was that. They're, they didn't choose... To, to stick it to the gamer by not releasing the graphics solution um, with that CPU that would be comparable to an Xbox Series X. They weren't allowed to. Even if they wanted to, they wouldn't have been able to. And it, that thought never crossed his head. The business aspect and the business relationship between AMD and Microsoft was never discussed, was never speculated on. AMD didn't release the graphics engine that they that they generated for the Xbox Series X because they didn't want to. That was all that it was that was said. They chose Not to do it. And they could have been a hero if they would have and give a lot of people relief in this market where GPU prices are um, greatly appreciated. But I guarantee you that was not an AMD decision within a vacuum. There's no way that it would have. When you're contracted from another company to do something, there are parameters within that contract. Let's say Ford uh, has a third-party company that uh, is making their brakes, okay? And this company makes brakes for other auto manufacturers as well. And Ford says, look, we want you to make this brake. We've designed this brake. It's a hydroponic (laughs) braking system that needs no um, brake pads. The owners of our vehicles will never have to worry about replacing brake pads ever again. And this, this is how the system's designed. And we want you to manufacture these brakes for us. And that company looks at the design and says, yeah, we can do that. And so they enter a contract for that to take place now do you think that company could go to chevrolet or go to uh dodge and say hey guys you should see what we're building for ford it's a brake that doesn't need brake pads you guys should should have those kinds of brakes too let us know if you want us to make you guys the same brakes of course they can't There are multiple patents on those things, just like there are probably multiple patents on the CPUs and the GPUs that are used in Xbox Series X. AMD is doing the design for uh, PlayStation 5. It's a different design. Its graphics computer po- computing power is different than the Xbox Series X computing power. And its CPUs are, th- are the same. AMD didn't release a chip with a graphics solution that is on par with an Xbox Series X because it wasn't allowed to. And the fact that that wasn't even addressed as a possibility just knocked me down. It really, really did. And it lets me, it reaffirms Um, my assessment of, of tech tubers, although technically quite sound, often doesn't address the business aspect of what's going on with these large megacorporations and why the business end determines what happens and what's released as much as the research and development is. So that's my rant. All right, surge protection. We're going to, I think I dropped some audio. So, uh, yeah, surge protection, we're going to get into that right now. Um, let's see, yeah, ladies and gents, and, uh, I'm already on with, to the, uh, Diet Cherry Coke that's not spiked. (laughs) I'm a lightweight, so, (laughs) um. It was it was good, but uh now it's just on to regular code. Okay, um I do have some corresponding photographs in uh my Twitter account and uh for everybody that is Griffin Sim Edge. And I'll spell it for you, capital G R Y P H O N, capital S I M, capital E D G. All one word. Griffin Sim Edge at the at sign. Griffin capital G R Y P H O N two nine eight four one six seven six. That's Griffin Sim Edge at Griffin two nine eight four one six seven six. So go to there and type that in. I, I guess in the search Twitter uh, box, which will be in the upper uh, right hand side and hit profile and hit media and you will see uh, two uh, collections of photographs. One at the bottom is my power surge protection setup and above that my ethernet surge protection solution so um, and we'll talk about those photographs in depth in just a minute. So what is surge protection, and why is it important? Let's get to the nitty and the gritty. Okay. Let me tell you what happened to a a rebrief what happened to my computer. As far as I could tell, okay, um, the uh, motherboard was damaged. Um, The CPU was not damaged. the graphics card was damaged. And for what I can assess, the RAM was damaged. And um, the, uh, from what I could see on the motherboard, um, <clears throat> there was some carbon on the back, the rear I.O., that's input and output. That's the plate that's on the back of the computer. You know where you plug various things in where all your USB and stuff is. Right around the area where the Ethernet connected. Um, now the router had to be reset. Um, I had to unplug uh, both the... the. Um, I use a company, uh, we use a company called Spectrum. Um, I don't know if that's a Southeastern company or if it's a nationwide company. I honestly don't know. I should do a little bit more research on it. And um, the uh, Xbox One wasn't affected. Um, like I said uh, an earlier broadcast that uh, um, we don't really have cable. We get everything uh, through our Xbox One. It's connected to our uh um, beautiful, uh, 50 inch, uh, 4k television. And, um, it, that's what we watch Netflix on and we watch, uh, um, YouTube on predominantly and, um, uh, Amazon prime and various other streaming, uh, entities and, um, Disney, uh, Plus, I think it's called Disney Plus. And um Gotta watch my Mandalorian. (laughs) I'm totally addicted to that show. But uh um uh none of that was damaged. And that goes into a modem, and the modem goes into a router. And um the router is hardwired into the uh back of the PC. So, the two devices that are um, hardwired into the router, um, and I believe five can be hardwired, but uh, the two devices that are hardwired into the back of the router are the Xbox um, One, and don't ask me if it's a 1S or 1... I have no idea. Um, it's the one that you slide the disk in. I know there's one that, that's just a downloadable content and it doesn't have a physical disk player. But this one has a physical disk player. And um, the actual PC. Um, the network went down. Uh, even when the power came on, the network was not responding. And um I reset the network and um when I went to click on uh um the PC, which was uh its its name was Vader two, um nothing happened. There was zero response. There was no video signal whatsoever. And uh <clears throat> the video card was damaged, which was a Zotec uh, 1080 Ti mini card. And um, it just was dead. Um, I tested the CPU and it was damaged and I knew that the motherboard was damaged. And so it was pretty much a loss. Um, the monitor still worked, which I resold. And um, I tested the. Uh, um, it looked at uh, both the uh, storage devices, the M.2 and uh, the uh, 2.5 um, 500 gig SATA, seemed to, seemed to work, worked fine. When I tested those out, so um, I rebuilt uh, the computer. It's it's strange that the Xbox um, One wasn't damaged and none of the network was damaged. So the electricity seemed to go through um, the Ethernet. The, the only reason why I think that that's the case is because the actual um surge protector that i had which was a fairly decent one it was uh 3000 joules. um the it's supposed to have a uh well it just has a power light it just has an on and off so either it happened through the surge protector or it happened through the the ethernet either way <laughs> the result's the same I had a broken computer, <laughs> and I had to rebuild a new one. And um, and if you listen to the show, doing the research that I did as I was picking out parts, I came to the conclusion that uh, uh, an AMD Radeon um, was was the, the the best was the best option, um, especially with uh, building a rig um, that's centered around Microsoft Flight Simulator. So surge is power. Now, this is all layman's terms. Um, I have a friend. uh, His name is Tristan. He's an actual electrician. He lives on uh, super high-rise buildings in Miami and does all the wiring and construction and um, way – you know, was a girder walker, that kind of thing, way up high. But uh, – and he would probably cringe at the way that I'm describing things. But a surge protection is a um, surge, just like, you know, what the word says, of electricity that comes through the lines and then um, damages your equipment. Let's talk about myth number one, okay? Okay. Standard surge prote- – and uh, let's talk about the, the different kinds of surge protect I live in an apartment. If I um, lived in a home, I would get a surge protector for the home. That is an actual surge protection box that is at the junction box. That's The junction box is the box that's on the side of your home. I don't know if every place around the world does it this way, but – and that's where the main power lines are feeding into the home that that allow you to, um, <clears throat> that are distributed through the different outlets that you could plug in different outlets and and power up uh, your devices and um, and uh, appliances. And they have surge protectors. They're basically. Uh, you know, a, a cube from what I've seen and um, you uh, hook this cube up at or in the junction box, the main junction box that the, that for your home, and um, it arrests and grounds the surge at that level. I live in an apartment complex. Obviously, I can't do that. Um, we do have a junction box that's in the apartment, but, um, I was told that they would not allow me to put a surge protector on the inside of the junction box. Then that's liability reasons if the, if the electrician did something wrong and it caused a fire and blah, 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 they would, that they would be liable for it. So, um. that that is the best level of surge protection now there is a way to lightning proof your home and that's controversial there are some people that say when you put up these uh uh, lightning protection devices it actually attracts lightning and the lightning hits the the lightning like a rod kind of thing like a lightning rod kind of thing and They're a little bit more sophisticated than just a a rod that goes into the ground, but that's basically what it is, like, that's been around for, you know, a hundred years or so. Um, And then there's the surge protector. Now, if lightning strikes the apartment building, or my apartment specifically, or the building, there's... It's true that there's really nothing that can take place. You're going to, your equipment's going to be fried. I had, I lived in an apartment in Orlando, which Orlando is not known for getting huge amounts of lightning, um, you know, outside of tropical storms and stuff, but they, they, they get a decent amount. It's Orlando's kind of landlocked. That's almost right in the middle of the state. It's not on a coast. And it's it's more or less the coastal cities that are very vulnerable to lightning, but whether be it on the east coast or the west coast. And um the west coast has the Gulf of Mexico and the East Coast has the Atlantic. And um both are prone to 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 receiving uh large amounts of lightning. Um Tampa's pattern, summer pattern, what we call the storm season, um, we get a thunderstorm just about every day. We're not into that season yet, but we've seen some very um, big storms uh, early in the year already. Um, but it it becomes like a, a kind of a cycle, like this weather engine that uh, clouds build up, huge cumulus clouds, which is why you don't see... <laughs> I feel sorry, well, you do see some people try to do the the satellite um uh satellite dishes for their t v programming and it's fine in the winter months, but in the summer months when you're having a thirty story cumulus cloud right over your satellite uh, good luck trying to get a signal it just doesn't happen but uh um and they don't tell you that the dish the dish companies don't tell you that it it's um, the cumulus clouds that we get in Florida and, and I'm sure of uh, various other places in the Southeast are gigantic. They're like, um, literally 30 story buildings of cloud right above you. And, uh, they're spectacular to watch. They make for spectacular sunsets, but they make for very, very poor signals. Um, a lot of people are excited about the, the, the new internet service that, uh, is related uh, to Elon Musk, part of the SpaceX program that he's got going on. I'd be interested to see what kind of connection those are going to have in areas like Florida, where you have these gigantic cumulus clouds uh, during various seasons, and the clouds build up throughout the day because of the the, the heat and the humidity and the 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 cool. Uh, of the actual oceans and Gulf waters, and uh, this creates a, a condition where the the clouds just build and build and build, um, and then around between three thirty and six, we get a thunderstorm. Usually lasts about an hour. Sometimes it could be as short as thirty minutes, and it dumps copious amounts of rain, and huge amounts of lightning, and then by uh any time between seven and nine p.m. the it, it pretty much dissipates. Now there are days where we get storms for multiple days where it literally is, you know, stormy for for like three days. But uh the pattern is usually a daily pattern. And um uh, But there was a time where I lived in Orlando for four years. And um, I lived in an apartment um, there. And uh, the apartment building, so imagine uh, a parking lot in the middle and then it's surrounded by different apartment buildings. Uh, Well, actually the apartment buildings were like in rows. And the apartment building that was across the parking lot from where i lived got a direct hit by lightning i mean it blew a hole in the roof and my equipment across the parking lot totally got fried my stereo was hot to the top i mean you know everything blew um the appliances survived but I lost the TV in my bedroom. I lost my main stereo system that was in my living room. And, um, you know, I unplugged the stereo. That stereo, and I'm not exaggerating, was warm to the touch for three days. It literally was artificially hot. You could touch it and feel heat on that stereo for three days and uh, um, so yeah. Um, that's about as, as a close direct hit uh, that I've ever got received in, living in Florida. Direct lightning hits are very rare. So is it true that if you got a direct lightning hit, a any kind of consumer grade surge protector would not be expected to, to protect the equipment? Yes. That's sort of like a you know act of nature, if you will, and there's really not much that can be done about that. But surges happen if lightning strikes a house you know in the next block so those are not rare or if they hit the main uh I'm trying to think of the name of it it's not junction box they have these you know uh power relay stations i guess you would call them that's what you see uh like in the storm Um, And and storm footage, hurricane footage, and you see like the big blue, you know, explosion off in the distance. That's that's a relay station getting hit, and then you lose power, you know, for multiple hours or multiple days for however long it takes the power companies to to fix to fix those. You could get a that could be two miles away from where you live. And, uh, and I've seen it. I've been in hurricanes where I'll see the, the, the blue glow and then you could, you know, within five seconds, everything in your house goes dark. So, and uh, when you see that blue glow, you go, I hope that wasn't the one I'm connected to. <laughs> and if, it, if you don't lose power, then somebody else lost power, you know, uh, or, or uh, many somebody else's lost power but that wasn't your particular relay station. And so you might survive and still have, have power. Um, uh, I forget the actual tropical storm. Um, it wasn't a hurricane. It was just below hurricane status. And, uh, I was out of power for five days. None of my equipment was damaged, but I was, but I was out of power for five days. Um, but, uh, It, um, and that blows in the middle of the summer. Oh, that is just the worst. Um, the, uh, um, you could get a surge from that relay station getting hit and it could, it could blow out your equipment. A house could get hit by lightning. Lightning could hit the ground or hit a, um, an electrical line, you know, a power line, um, a pole, you know, and and a surge can go through that line from that two miles away and damage your equipment. Those are common. So when I hear a person say, well, surge protector can't protect you from a direct hit of lightning. There's no point in having them. They're just, a, it's just a gimmick. It's a ripoff. They don't understand lightning strikes (laughs) and they don't understand what a surge is because a surge protector can, absolutely can protect your equipment from a power surge, which is much, much, much more common than a direct lightning strike. On your particular dwelling. So there are different classifications of surge protectors. Now first let me tell you this. Most people listening to this broadcast probably know this. You guys are fairly tech savvy. Um, a power strip, you know the, the oval shaped or rectangular shaped uh, little uh, bank that has, you know, six plugs or f- four plugs, you know, that allows you to to plug uh, several different devices that's, that's only being utilized by one outlet. Those rarely have any kind of surge protection to them. Some of them do, but they're less than a thousand joules. They might be at like 350 joules or you know, four hundred and fifty joules, and joules is uh, the the measurement. There's a long, in-depth explanation to what a joule is, and and I invite you, if you're interested in this stuff, to go look it up for yourself. But um, the higher the joules, um, and those are spelled, I think, J O U L, or J-O-U-L-E-S, I'm not sure. But uh, the more beefier that surge protection is and being able to protect your equipment. The, the high-end ones, now the general consensus is get a surge protector, protector that is at least a thousand joules. I'll go along with that if you live in Nebraska or if you live in Minnesota um, or you know someplace like that, but even Georgia, which is uh most of the state is landlocked, they get really bad thunderstorms because they're right on the southeast part of the united states and and they're subject to this kind of Weather pattern. So you 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 know your environment obviously, and uh, if you're subject to a lot of lightning, um, my suggestion would be to get a surge protector that is beyond a thousand joules. Now the highest that I've seen, you know, I'm not saying that there's not anything that's higher out there, but seems to be around. 4,000 joules, uh, give or take a couple of hundred. Mine, uh, is 4,300 joules, my surge protector for, and that's going to protect, um, the, uh, the power surge that would come through the actual outlet itself. Um, the, uh, surge protector I have also, has the advantage of, and I suggest, you know, look at the price points of these things that, you know, some of them will have it, some of them won't, some of the don't have it are higher priced than some of them that do. So, but, um, mine gives a light, a red light when the protection is, uh, on and everything is working correctly. It has a red light. It has a green light to let you know that your outlet is properly grounded, and it has a power light that says that the the actual surge protector switch is in the on position that's allowing uh, power to go through it to to power your devices. Um, I've done a lot of research, and the one of the number one protectors um, is uh, called a um, is from a company called TripLite and it's called the ISOBar Surge Protector. And they come in four, six, and eight. Now, somewhere along the line within the last two years. Um, if you look at an older one, um, there's a video that's about a year old where they take apart a trip light surge protector and you can see that it is, um, very beefy. It's got several relays. There's these, uh, yellow discs that, uh, that take surge protection and they, they, they basically sacrifice themselves and the more of those that you have in there um, the better and then there's like circuit breakers um, there's power surge protectors with the with the circuit breakers um, the on their own website they show you what's inside a trip light um trip light isobar surge protector and it is nothing as good as the videos that I've seen a year or older where 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 uh they were taking them apart like on a YouTube channel and showing you what's inside the new ones that are on their website and they show you on the inside what the, what it looks like nowhere near as good as the older ones were. Um the problem with getting an old one on eBay, and I thought about this, I was like, well I'll get an old one. Um they showed you what the the you could see what the difference between the old ones and the new ones are the nomenclature is a little bit different on the outside of the box and what have you is that search protectors um really only have about a, a, a three-year lifespan. So getting an older one, um, you're still taking a chance that uh, you're not going to have something that protects your equipment. Um, I didn't like what I saw inside the new trip light. Uh, and like I said, it's the photograph, the, the, the video of it is is on their own website. So um, I did some further research. And I um, Outside of these kind of uh, um, yellow disc kind of protection that's it's like two wires going into like this flat yellow ceramic looking disc and those pop when the surge comes and the more of those that pop, you know the, the more they're absorbing the, the power that of the surge that's going through the device. Now outside of that, that's sort of like the old way of doing it. The the new way is they have like these multiple circuit breakers that are connected to each outlet, uh, that go down the, 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 the run of the, the, the surge protector. If you were to take it apart. And, uh, the one that I saw that looked really good was, uh, um. The, the company, the surge protector that I'm going to uh, tell you about. Now the first thing I would look for in surge protection is it has that the surge protector itself, okay, so I'm probably using circuit breaker in the wrong way in describing what those things are but there's these little connections that sacrifice themselves as as the power surge goes through the device but whether they have the the yellow disc or or those um you want a surge protector that is going to have circuit breaking technology which means as soon as it detects a power surge it shuts down not all surge protectors do that and so you're relying on whatever surge protection um, medium they use uh, in the box to, to, to ground the surge, but the power still allowed to go through it. Um, and, and those aren't as reliable to protecting your equipment as those that have The circuit breaker. So when you look at the description of the power surge, as you shop for these things, um, you want one that says, you know, it it uh, breaks the connection. It has a circuit breaker technology, and they they work within nanoseconds. Some are five nanoseconds, some are four nanoseconds. You know, they're they're always around. uh, They're always around that time frame. So that's the first thing I would look at. Um, the next thing I would look at is the joules. So mine is 4,350 joules protection, and it has a circuit, circuit breaker technology in it. So the circuit breaks within nanoseconds of it receiving the power surge. That seems to be the best combo in surge protection that you get. And I like indications that knowing, because some apartment outlets, um, one of the things that I've researched is there are some apartments that have outlets that are not properly grounded. They should be, um, but often it's not the case. Uh, maybe something happened and maintenance did the rewiring of it, um, which they should call a certified electrician to, to do that, but a lot of apartment complexes don't. They have maintenance men that know how to do a lot of different things. And, uh, you know, they'll fix the wiring in the outlet so that the outlet is delivering power, but they might not have properly grounded. And if you live in an apartment complex that is, you know, 20, this one's almost 30, 30 years old, and, you know, 10, 15, 20, 30 years, you never know what was done in those individual units. So, um, I wanted to make sure that the outlet that uh, cipher was plugged into—that's my computer—um, was properly grounded, and this surge protector gives you an indication of ground. <clears throat> so if I plugged it in and that green light didn't go on, so if you get a surge protect surge, if you live in an apartment complex, or or you could live in a home, I suppose, and you plug in your surge protector in it and it's one that has a ground indicator and that ground light doesn't come on, then if you own a home or uh, you would call an electrician and make sure that that outlet is properly grounded. Um, if you have a landlord, you would contact that landlord and say, look, um, you know, there's an outlet here. I have a, a ground detector and it's showing that it's not properly grounded and the landlord would have to ground it. And if you live in an apartment complex and it wasn't properly grounded, then you call your your maintenance staff and let them know that look this outlet you know call the office and say look there's an outlet here that is not properly grounded. I have a a ground protect uh, ground detector on my surge protector and uh, a ground indicator on my surge protector and it's not it's not uh, illuminating, which means that it's not properly grounded. So I wanted one that was going to let me know if, it was, if, if my outlet was properly grounded or not. And if it wasn't, I would have contacted the office because by law, every outlet is supposed to be granted, grounded. At least that's the building code for Florida. I, 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 I might be regressing and assuming that that's that case everywhere. But um, remiss, I should have said. Um but uh, so I wanted that, and I wanted the light to let it know, to let me know that the circuitry uh, of protection is intact and is working correctly. Um, most all of them have some sort of power light. Either the switch itself lights up, or there's a LED indicator that the power light is on. Um, mine is a white LED. You won't see it in the picture because there's a cable. That blocks it, but but it's there. Um, so let's uh, get into now, search protecting protection for Ethernet, that's a different story. And um, a lot of these uh, search protector outlet search protectors um, will have Ethernet protection or network protection. And the problem with that. Is that current um, internet connection speeds are a um, hundred megabits per second, five hundred megabits per second, one gigabit per second, and there seems to be two classifications with that. It's either a hundred megabits per second. Se- um, per second, or a thousand megabits, or what they call gigabit um, per second. I'm going to say 99.9 because there might be a manufacturer out there that does it. I did not find it. All of the surge protectors that I found on Amazon, electrician, uh, you know, electrical equipment websites, um, uh, Best Buy, uh, uh, Newegg, um, on and on. Um, the network protection on the search protector are one hundred megabit per second uh, network uh, switch uh, in inputs and outputs, which means that if you're running your internet speed, and we all know that Microsoft Flight Simulator, the better the internet speed, the better uh, the experience is going to be. Um, if you have an interconnect, internet connection that is above 100 megabits per second, you're not going to get that speed if your ethernet cables are connected to that surge protector because it does not allow more than 100 megabits per second connection to go through it. So if you have more than 100 megabits per second, you have 250 or 500, that seems to be the common, and the business lines get gigabyte, um, it is not, you're not going to have that internet speed if you have. Your Ethernet cable's plugged in there to be protected by the search protector, so you'll be paying for uh, a higher rate internet connection, and you're not going to be able to utilize um, that uh, that speed if you're protecting your Ethernet cables. So. What I have found is you have to find a different solution to protect um, your Ethernet that's separate from the surge protector that you're using to protect surges through your outlet. I hope that made sense the way that I described it. Um, the uh, power surge protector that I ended up getting that uh, protects my outlet will work on that first. Is the I wish I could pronounce it, it's Wittem or Wittem, it's W I T E E M, uh, 12 outlet um, surge protector. And uh, I'll go online to get this, the specs. It's got a six foot power cord and it has um, the, uh, the wording that they use is um, says that uh, it provides all-around protection for your connected devices and appliances. Our search protector um, comes with 4360 joules of protection rating and it has an integrated circuit breaker in automatic shutdown technology. That's what I was saying that uh, for the best surge protectors are going to have that shutdown technology because it shuts everything down. There's some surge protectors where you read the description and it doesn't talk about um, the ability to be able to do an automatic shutdown. Um, and that is important because um, that's sort of like the first line of defense. This device is going to sacrifice itself um, to protect your equipment. And being that this particular device on Amazon, it's Amazon Choice actually, um, is twenty seven dollars. It's twenty six ninety nine. Um, I've seen some uh um YouTube channels uh with videos where they consider the best surge protectors the as the protectors that uh that can protect from a surge and still um continue operating um those are not. The best surge protectors. Most of those are going to be at like 1,000 joules or below. The devices are not meant to survive a surge protector and and protect your equipment and and keep and keep going. I mean, the the prudent consumer would would say, yeah, I want that one because then I don't have to buy a new one every time a surge goes through. But that's not the functionality of it. It it's supposed to sacrifice itself to protect your equipment so that you know when a when a power surge takes place you lose your $27 device and you go and buy a new $27 device and your $3,000 computer is is working fine (laughs) that's that's what you want um, to take place Um, it's uh maximum rated power is uh, 1875 watts so um that is uh that seems to equal 4360 joules i'm not sure what the mathematical relationship is between those two things um but uh um that's that's the specs of this device, and again, it's it is on Amazon for twenty six ninety nine. Um, it's got uh, two thousand one hundred and forty six ratings at five stars. Um, the uh, uh, five stars got eighty seven percent. Four stars got ten percent. Together, those are ninety seven percent. So. Um, That uh, um, is a pretty good, pretty good as far as ratings go. Um, The, uh, trying to see, it's got an internal picture um, and it's just music that plays. So I'll turn that off. I'm going to pause it. And they do the. Uh, there we go. And you can see there are. Um, no, that deposit? <laughs> There's, uh, 1, um, 13, um, so there are twenty eight um circuits um that uh um, will blow out in other words uh before electricity goes through your actual device um and uh it, it shows you. Uh, the inside um, and it says the conductive material made of high quality pure copper is twice as thick as other power strips and from what you can see of the photograph that definitely seems to be um, the case. The other thing that is important is that the, it says that the materials that are made um, are fireproof. So, um, the, uh, it's 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 a pretty good one. Um, yeah, and it says, uh, twelve outlets at one thousand eight hundred and seventy five watts. Um, 15 amps, 4360 joules. Um, So uh, that's the rating of this one. Um, And I've done research and I found this to be uh, a very, very good one, especially at the price point. Now there are non-interrupted power supplies and those are like a battery backup, but um, as cool as that is um and there's definitely usage cases where that might be wanted they very rarely give you more than 500 joules of protection so um that doesn't seem to be what i needed um uh at the at the time. Now, um, what else was I going to say? One of the power supplies that I looked uh, hard at that also had 4050 joules um, and it had a network Uh, Ethernet cable telephone coaxial protection um, uh, built-in Ethernet um, protection and it doesn't say anywhere what the speed of that network is only when you got down to the uh, question and answers the question was, uh, does the Ethernet port support gigabyte 10, 100, 1,000 speed or only up to 100 megabits per second? And this is a common question because people have more than 100 megabits per second internet connection network. And it said the answer was supports up to 100 megabits per second. Um, So if you have a higher internet speed than that, uh, you're not going to get it when your Ethernet is plugged into this device. So, um, that is the name of that tune and I have went through a lot of them uh, for several hours and I didn't find anything that was above 100 megabits per second. I just didn't. This was CRST um uh rocket socket technology um and uh there's one by trip line and a modern one that's not the uh isobar um that uh has 3000 joules it has a uh um network connection and also it was only at 100 megabits per second you can go through and look and look and look and uh, you're not um, going to find uh, any that are above it at least I'm not on the research means that I was able to do consumer research means that I was able to do um, so um, there's no point in spending extra money for a surge protector that has network protection if you're running at speeds above 100 megabits per second. Um, I tested mine and uh, we can go uh, online right now and I have at and speed test and uh, I tested mine before I plugged it in and after. and. Um, and uh let's see what the speed meter shows that i'm currently getting um with my ethernet protection device that i installed and uh it's at uh, 139.5 which i get anywhere between uh 135 i'm um, 239.5 i get anywhere between two 230 to 240 uh it's usually somewhere in between there so um and uh my upload speeds are around 12 11.8 11.9 it varies but um and that's what i'm currently getting tonight 239.5 um so um okay let's uh go to twitter and uh, um, go to media and we'll go down to the second one my power surge protection setup and that's just the box so that you guys see the box that has got the name of the company and uh, essentially what it what it is and um, I took a picture of this one of the things that was really nice that, that, you know, the company didn't have to do this is they give you this sort of mounting template, which has the, uh, the holes, um, correspond to where the holes are on the, um, the mounting holes were on the surge protector. And so you can just tape this to the wall or to the, uh, the desk. I have it taped to the inside of my desk and you drill the holes through it and uh you know that's where um the holes are going to be be, and and they are it fit exactly on there you just put it on and then you push down so it's got the the wider holes where the screw heads fit through and then you push it down so it kind of locks into place and uh it worked perfectly so um that was really nice now my desk is basically particle board so i i did use the the, the wall anchors because i figured as i plug things in and out that screw is going to come in and out of kind of saw through the, the the particle board and uh eventually um come out everything will get loose so i used the 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 wall anchors uh to hold it in place and it's it's very solid um I've plugged things in and plugged things out of it and nothing moves. Uh, It worked very, very well. Um, The next picture is of the surge protector itself. And as I said, um, you can see the rectangle switch at the bottom. And there's a cord right where that cord is, is where the white power LED light is. But uh, you can see ground. Um... And that's a green light that's letting me know that my outlet is properly grounded. And, um, you can see the red light is, uh, means that the, that it's currently being protected. Um, my plug (laughs) for my, uh, router is this strange kind of plug and it, uh, unfortunately is, uh, takes up a lot of space so it it actually took up two of the usb the way i mounted it it took up two of the usbs that were available these are smart usbs too they can detect how fast your device can charge and charge it at that at that speed and i can attest that that's true to my phone Um, even though i have a high speed charger in the outlets it's uh it's a little bit slower when I plug it into this the phone actually charges um, I'd say about 25% faster so um, that was pleasant to see Um, and uh, the I have the computer uh, the monitor um, the router and um, something else (laughs) plugged in I'm not sure what it is Um, but uh, yeah Um, and uh, those are all plugged into the surge protector and the surge protector is mounted on the ins that white on top is the the inside top of the desk and um, it's uh, securely mounted so it's not on the floor and uh, it helped with my cable management uh, immensely and everything looks a lot cleaner on the floor now and uh that's tucked away under the desk you really don't see it it's not very visible unless you go looking for it but even there I have uh my cords uh um tapered and they are connected via uh cable ties um and so uh that's um how i uh oops didn't mean to turn off, but what am I doing, there we go, um, now let's talk about uh, Ethernet, so we already determined, um, well let me let me talk about Ethernet on the flip side, we're going up against the hard break, so uh, I'll go ahead and uh, break it here and when we come back we'll talk about uh, Ethernet connection and then we'll go on our much awaited, uh, anticipated um, flight sim adventure. So I'll see you guys on the flip side. Alright, so we already determined that uh, if you have above um, 100 megabit speed um, or if you're going to get one, like, uh, you know, if you're going to get uh, fiber optic in your area and you know that you're going to opt for a more high-speed internet connection Um, there's no point in paying the extra money because on average it seems to be 10 or 15 dollars more if you have uh, uh, network protection built into the surge protector but if we um, have uh, more than uh, 100 megabits uh, access speed um, then that search protector is not going to allow you to access those speeds because it's only qualified for 100 megabits. So then you have to find a separate solution. And I looked at a lot of different devices, and this is the one uh, I chose. Um, so let's go to it. This is from a company called Watchful Eye, and it is a 2 um a double uh if you will um, solution and uh, see we go. um so that's that's the box that it came. It came in a very simple box, just a white box says watchful eye um, this was about uh, thirty six dollars um I'll look it up and we'll get the exact pricing but uh, um, the first picture. Is and these are like a square, uh, beefy kind of little cube that has uh, a connector that goes into um, the router. The the um, and so um, on one, it comes with two of them. And I connected uh, my router cable, those are the rest of the cables that usually go into the router. I took those out so that um, you could. S- Uh, see it installed and so you plug your Ethernet into it and then you plug that into where your Ethernet cable would go um, from the wall and um, it is basically it's very simple it's it's like a metal um, connective device inside and that um, when a surge goes through there um, it'll literally pop You'll hear a pop noise. You might even see smoke, and that's the device sacrificing itself. Um, so what's cool about this is there's similar ones out there, but they're just one. They're just uh, one device. This is a dual device, and I liked the protection that it gave you. That so that's gonna, if uh, surge was to come through that Ethernet cable, that would. Uh, um, um, sacrifice itself, and it, it does it within nanometers, nanoseconds, I'm sorry, um, <clears throat> of of the surge going through it. And then uh, that's the back, back of Cypher, and uh, there's another one that goes into it. Um, and then the Ethernet cable that comes out of the router that goes into the computer goes into it. So it has dual protection, so the first one would sacrifice itself, and if any surge got through that, then this device um, would protect itself uh, to um, to keep the remaining surge from uh going into your um uh, motherboard where the where the port that connects to your motherboard to uh um the, the Ethernet access and uh, this is a gigabyte um this is a two point five gigabit um connector uh on the on the uh, MSI mortar. So um uh, there you go. Um You can see, and I didn't take a picture of the rear I.O. One of the things I didn't take a picture of, but um, I heard disputes saying that oh no the MSI does not have um, the uh, Flash BIOS button unless it's on the higher end boards. That's not true and you can look right above the USB slot and you will see a little button that says Flash BIOS. So there are some YouTubers that are saying that they don't even look at the they don't even have the motherboard or they don't have the IO um, but uh, yeah to not kill a dead pony um, that's the dead that's the uh, F- BIOS flash button uh, right there so if you go to my uh, Twitter account which again is GriffinSimEdge at Griffin two nine eight four one six seven six you can see the photographs and the uh, the individual photographs uh, that I talked about and um, movies that I talked uh, of uh, videos that I uh, captured on my phone, um, in regards to the to to my build, but um, so if you're so interested, um, that's available to you. Um, I didn't take a video, so I'm not going to upload. Uh, this material onto the YouTube channel, Um, but uh, if you wanted to go to the YouTube channel um, to see um, if you're like, oh I didn't know he took a YouTube uh, video, It is at uh, Griffin Paris. if you type in Griffin paris uh it'll go right to my uh account and uh there's two videos uh, No, there's one two three, four five videos um that uh um, that you can look at that uh in regards to the to the build um that we talked about so uh, just wanted to update you guys on that in case you haven't heard that, because uh, that was a few episodes ago. So, uh, let's go to Amazon and I should have it, yeah, right there. Watchful eye. That, uh, is, um, uh, watchful eye with, uh, uh wth-csg backslash rj45s direct in line plug in Ethernet surge protector and it it only shows the one but it gives you sort of the specs but it does come with a pack of to, oh no, that, that is the only the, You can get them one or you can get a pack of two. So uh, that is not correct. Let's see. Um, there's the two uh, search protector set that uh, I got. Um, the one uh, Go to the single one because it's it's much more direct, and oh no, this one has has the 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 specs to it and the 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 um, um the diagrams of of how it works. Now, I want to say this about Ethernet surge protection. Now, if, uh, um, also on the specs, if you look at the specs, uh, it's a mini indirect inline plug, and um, It has a data rate of 100 backslash 1000 megabits per second. Um, If you're getting two gigs or something that you know really powerful internet connection speeds um, you're gonna have a hard time finding something that's gonna protect that and allow that internet speed to come through. Um, One of the things I liked about this is that there were other devices um, that uh, had a separate um, ground wire um, that you had to um, connect the ground wire to? The, which was popular was to connect it to the outlet. Uh, the center screw is supposed to be grounded on a grounded uh, outlet, and you can screw that uh, into the screw and use the ground that, that comes through the outlet. Um, this had a built-in ground that used the, the 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 ground that comes into your uh router. Um so it uses that to to, to ground itself and to send the search uh through the through the ground via that methodology. Um my outlet is not where the Ethernet comes through, so that was not a a, a useful solution for me because I I didn't know how I was going to ground that ground wire. So this alleviated the need of that and um, I like the fact that it was a a dual, um, the single is 17 something and this one is $33.25 and it comes with two um, watchful eye uh, um, ethernet surge protectors data rated at 1000 megabits per second. So I'm hoping that that is going to be enough to um to give my ethernet a protection at least keep it out of the the computer. I really don't care if the router burns or if the modem burns because that's um my internet my ISPs they own that equipment and they'll have to replace that equipment if it gets uh if it gets uh bombed out from a from a from a power surge. So um, my objective doing it this way was to give my computer the best protection possible within um, my ability to do so. And what do I mean by that? There are outdoor Ethernet surge protectors um, where the surge, where the, um, if your Ethernet is coming in uh, to, a, a, I guess, a, a, a junction outside, you can, you, you can, there's weatherproof. Um, ethernet protectors that are outside and they seem to be a bit more robust um than than this solution is but again because i live in an apartment complex um i don't i don't have that i i think the wire comes in like from the from the uh roof or something it's i i've never seen um the the how that would work on the outside of the building although I gotta say I've never investigated it uh, directly Um, but this was the pair set and uh, it uh, um, has a data has a data sheet um, printed on the actual surge protector itself has a little uh, squiggly barcode looking thing that you can um, photograph on your phone and it will it will go to a data sheet. Um, but I think it's the same data sheet that, that they're showing on Amazon. I might check it out if I'm curious enough just to see what that's all about. But uh, It doesn't come with any documentation but it does have that on the search protector itself and you can use your um, uh, phone uh, Smartphone or uh, other uh, device to uh, um, to access that if 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 need be, but uh, so and it gives you a serial number um, as well uh, on the other side, but you can see it's like a metal. I've seen it uh, or similar ones. Um, I don't know if I've seen Watchful Eye tested on YouTube. I looked for it and I didn't see it but I've seen similar devices and they make like a pop when the surge goes through it and it smokes and uh, um, that it literally sacrifices itself so that uh, your equipment is protected. Um, That was considered a failure in some of the tests that I found with the Ethernet too. The same thing I described on the uh, power supply um, search protector uh, outlet, search protector, and you know, to me, if it protects the equipment, that's a pass. I could care less if the uh, search protector itself is damaged. That seems to be the whole point of it, as far as I'm concerned. But uh, you know, there's some that the uh, that uh, it protected the device. And uh, the uh, surge protector itself was able to continue running. But I guarantee you that's going to be a much smaller um, surge than what, we're, than what we're talking about. And uh, I bet if you put a higher amperage surge through those, um, your equipment will end up damaged. This is designed as soon as a power surge goes through, it's going to pop and you'd have to buy a new one, but it's protecting your equipment. Um, I, some will say, well, why don't you just get one and protect Cypher from it? And if you don't care if the, the, the router gets damaged or not. Um, I did that because I thought that had the best chance to protect Cypher. If it's going to um, stop the surge at the router, and then it has another surge protector plugged in to Cypher directly, that's going to give you dual protection um, in in the sour and and that power surge. And they give you two of them for that purpose. So. It, they must know something that I don't, that sometimes the surge will still get through, even if one of them sacrifices themselves. So it made sense to me to get a, a dual set. Um, and so that's what I did. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, the time has got This is a long feature-rich show, as we said. But uh, that is the... Um, uh, part of the podcast where we're talking about technical stuff. The next thing we're going to do is our flight sim adventure. So go ahead and uh, stop uh, the podcast here, get your, um, um, uh, flight simulator loaded up and ready to go. And, uh, I will describe to you, um, from the beginning, um, the flight sim adventure and uh... what it's all about so uh... i'll see you guys on the flip side after you get uh, everything prepared okay gang did you uh... get your flight simulator loaded and uh... microsoft flight simulator we're gonna go to world map and uh... We're going to go to Lakeland. Okay, so uh, what you're going to want to do, let's just take it from the world, the Earth. (laughs) And you're going to revolve the Earth to, you see, the United States. And uh, hone in on Florida. And just zoom in with your mouse. And uh, pick the center of the state, more or less. And um, zoom in till you get to K L A L Lakeland Linder Regional, and uh, zoom in. And um, I like to go from Ramp Forty Nine. is um, so it Sixty Nine? Let's do 68. Set that as Departure. And then we're going to zoom out. Oh, what am I doing? I got to have you guys pick an aircraft, right? Today, tonight, we're going to rock the icon a5 and if you downloaded the um, uh, liveries pack um, I think I told you guys how to do that but uh, um, <clears throat> if you downloaded the liveries pack and if, if uh, you don't know how to do it go to um, YouTube and uh, type in liveries, um, flight simulator, um, 2020, Microsoft Flight Simulator 2020. And I think it's frugal. I'm pretty sure it's frugal sim, but I'm not sure, uh, completely. And he gives you a very good tutorial on how to do that. Um, uh, I'll put that in the notes. I'll put that in the notes. So, uh. Uh you guys will be up to speed. I have the Citrus. So the Icon A5 Citrus is what I'm doing now. This plane um is there's no autopilot on it. You're going to have to fly it by stick. And I got to tell you guys something. Can I tell you guys something? Well, let me get into the simulator and then, and then and then we'll talk. We're going to talk a little bit about things. Um So, uh, yeah, so when you get to your plane, the Icon 5, uh, go to, uh, you know how to pick a plane, hopefully, (laughs) but you go in the hangar, you go into a personal hangar, and then you pick the Icon 5. It's part of the standard pack, so you don't, all the planes I'm going to pick um, for our flights and adventures, um, at least in the beginning, um, for the foreseeable future. I should say, are going to be in the basic pack. Um, So go find the United States, find Florida, find Lakeland, Linder Regional or KLAL. Pick uh, parking number 68. And we're going to set it for... 7:45 a.m and uh okay so what are we doing next little do you guys know um we're going to pick you will see a huge um water lake area and uh it kind of looks like uh um I guess it's kind of eye-shaped, maybe. Um, And zoom in on that. That, uh, I believe, is uh, the Everglades, Lake Okeechobee. And um, we're going to go to KPHK. KPHK. Palm Beach uh, Gardens. And we will pick... um, Ramp 22, and we'll set that as Arrival and uh, um, right, uh, pretty close to the middle, zoom out and then um, look for KAVO, that's Avon Park Executive, we're going to click on that. And we're just going to hit add to that and that is going to be your kind of waypoint as you were. It's right in the middle. You don't have to deviate. It's pretty much a direct flight. But we have a few surprises in store. Trust me. Now, if you're like, well, you know what? I don't want to fly the icon. I want to fly something different. That's fine but for the flight sim adventure to be complete, you have to pick this aircraft. You have to pick it. That is just the way that it is. So 7.45 a.m., um, you can just keep uh, flight conditions. Um, I think I'm on uh, live flight conditions, I'm not sure. But uh, it should be a uh, clear day. And uh, go ahead and hit fly. And uh, we'll wait for all the information to compile. And uh, read the ever redundant um, notes that <laughs> Microsoft Flight Simulator gives you as you're waiting for the load screen to complete. And um, we're just going to do that. And there you see Lakeland Linda Regional Airport, my home airport, even though I live in the Tampa Bay area. Um, this airport is really, really cool. It's where they have the uh, um, Florida Sun and Fun um, air show every year. It's a massive air show. It's uh, really quite cool. And uh, we're seeing different uh, views of the icon in its parking spot. And um, let's go to external view for right this second. And we can take a look at the airframe. And, um,. And uh, I'll get you guys uh, to the runway with me. How's that? So we'll go to cockpit. Oh, external. And we're going to test our yoke. Elevators and ailerons. Looking good. Okay. So let's go on uh, Cockpit. and um, now how to do turn this baby on is uh, we're gonna hit the master switch turn battery master on and if you have a uh, flight panel peripheral that you can do that with that's really cool I'm doing it with the mouse right now and go to above look over your head and you will see um, a uh, fuse box and um, a parachute, uh, it's not operable, it'd be fun to test it out. Yes, this plane actually has a parachute, if all else fails you can pull that parachute will deploy and it will float to the ground. And, uh, but what we're here for is we want to open fuel shutoff valve and you just click that and that'll click to on And uh, we'll go ahead and put our strobe lights on, and we'll turn on our nav lights, and we'll turn on our taxi lights. And uh, I guess we don't have to turn the landing lights on, I uh, get rid of the yoke. Make sure the parking brake is deployed. Now the parking brake is tricky. It's a little silver tab right where your left knee would be in the left seat. Um, it's down there, release parking brake. I have a button that does that so it's all good. Um, I like to put the throttle up just a hair and we uh, go to the key and go to start. And it'll start right up. This is a really cool plane. You'll notice that the uh, flight... Uh, your air... your uh, indicators look like a the, the uh, cockpit of a car. Um, it's got a lot of carbon fiber. It's a really uh, nice plane. Um, So, our engines are started, and uh, I do external view, excuse me. Bring down the throttle a little bit. going to maneuver the aircraft. And man, is it nice to have rudder controls that uh, are available. And so we move, we move the aircraft, um, and we're heading. Um, it's a little bit touchy on the ground. A little bit touchy. go ahead and line up on runway 27 and we're going to just set our flaps um, to 15 or just one notch down. your little map device your little GPS looking thing um, you will be seeing that you're pointing perpendicular more or less to the flight path and so we're going to take a lazy turn we're not doing ATC uh, on this uh, on this flight and uh, probably won't do ATC on most of our flights I like to think of these as like singular adventures But uh, we're on the runway, lined up, runway 27. And uh, we are going to uh, give it gas, release the parking brake, and then give it full throttle. about 60 miles or miles an hour or so. We'll just lift gently up. And we're just going to go down the length of the runway. It uh, This is a short uh, landing and takeoff vessel so you will not use more than 30% of the runway. And we're gonna go ahead and make a lazy left-hand turn. we will see South Lakeland pass you by the banner that says South of Lakeland, and we're going to get to our route. Meanwhile, you can spend this time kind of trimming your aircraft. At full throttle, it likes to live at, uh, and we have, oh, put your landing gear and your flaps up. We're lining up with our flight plan now. Play with your trim a little bit, and continue to go ahead and uh, increase your altitude as we go. Kind of overshot my flight plan, if you will, a little bit. So I'm going to adjust that. There we are. This is a pretty good aircraft to keep trim. You'll have to work a little bit. Pull your throttle, but, um, pull your throttle back. Pull your yoke back to uh, increase your altitude. Right on, flight path We'll increase our altitude a bit. I'm right at about three thousand, and uh, I flew this originally. I found that four thousand was a very good altitude. You could still see a lot of details on the ground. Um. It just absolutely looks stunning. It looks very much like Florida from the air. I have flown this a few times in private aircraft, not a lot. Um, And I did that at the Fun and Sun Air Show. Um, I flew an ultralight, probably similar in specs to this aircraft here. Um, or what was a light aircraft? Wasn't the ultralights the one with like the the cloth wings, right? This was a. a, a and uh, we're almost at four thousand. Okay, I'm gonna trim down a little bit. This yoke. In my opinion, maybe it's just the way I fly. <laughs> but it is so much easier with this yoke compared to the Logitech yoke. I, I, I don't know what it is. You know, maybe because I set my the parameters myself or, or what have you. It just is way, way easier. So we're flying at about uh, 95 knots, and uh, I trimmed out at about 4,000 feet. And somebody said that this isn't a trim wheel. I saw somebody reviewing using this yoke and they're like, that's not a trim wheel. That's for setting your, I I, I don't know, one of the most misunderstood yokes I think in the business. So I'm not gonna fly this thing live the whole way. I just wanted to get you in the sky. And you just the tr- just the trim wheel. Uh, staying on that same flight path. And you might deviate a little bit here and there, just... You know, adjust accordingly. Yeah, we are dead on for 4,000 feet and dead on our flight path. that's beautiful Florida down below you can see farms and trees highways and I thought our first flight adventure would be something that uh, represented myself and the you know the surrounding area that I live and um, You can use the VFR map. Um, I don't consider that cheating. I mean, now a lot of pilots have uh, walk into their, their aircraft with uh, iPads and, and different uh, separate navigational aids. And that's what I considered the VFR map to be, like if I had a little iPad that uh, was with me, even if I was you know flying an analog plane that didn't have any kind of digital presence. Um, Any kind of glass, if you will, I would still probably uh, fly with like an iPad device or something of that nature. And we're going to be flying into CAVO. And so I want you guys to use that waypoint to fly into CAVO. It's important uh, to where we're going to line up um, as we get uh, to Lake Okeechobee. going to fly right by Croom's Homestead Ranch. That should pass you on your right side and as you fly over uh, KAVO, that's our first and only waypoint on this trip, you can see that you're starting to get into the Florida wetlands and uh It's pretty cool from an aerial view. And I think you guessed why it was important that we take this aircraft because we are going to do a water landing. And we're going to look uh, around. And it's just spectacular. Um, Just how gorgeous it is. And we're going to... uh, Use the uh, water rudder uh, on this aircraft and and boat around the lake a little bit. And uh, Avon Park Executive is right in front of us. That's how you know you're on course. You're about halfway there. the things I want you guys to use this trip for is learning how to set your trim I want you to try to stay between three and four thousand feet closer to four thousand feet and uh, stay on course If you could control this plane and keep it at 4,000 feet and on course without any kind of autopilot or anything like that, you know that uh, you got your flight basics down. Now you're coming up against the... uh, you're going to be going from Sebring Regional. Should be pretty much in front of you and you're splitting that body of water almost in half and I don't know uh, what that lake is called I should uh, look it up (laughs) and uh, and it's tempting to land there but that's not where we're going to land we're going to continue onward now, in case you're wondering, I'm getting between sixty five and seventy frames per second, but keep on mind, keep in mind, I have everything on ultra. every setting is on ultra, and I'm getting seventy frames per second, and we're going right over that body of water and just beyond that body of water, can't see it through the cockpit because of the uh, glare off the horizon right now, but uh, is Lake Okeechobee. And that is our destination. Now you'll notice there's like a a waterway. um, And uh, I believe that that's the feeder that feeds a lot of the sugar cane that's grown in Florida. Um, I kind of like to follow that. It's pretty much on our flight path and uh, it's interesting. And uh, So we should follow that and that's going to connect this body of water that we just passed to uh, Lake Okeechobee, which is in front of us. Now as you are about halfway between that body of lake and Lake Okeechobee, I want you to veer off the flight path a little bit And if you have your VFR map up, you will see this sort of rectangular jut that's at the bottom uh, left of what your, uh, the bottom right of the screen. It's almost like a perfect rectangle. That is where we're going to try to bring the Icon 5 down. So um, it's not going to be in the center of the light. That's where the... flight path is, but we're going to try to land in that little exposed area that is on the uh, lower right. If you were flying towards it, it will look like the um, lower left of the lake um, on your uh, VFR map. So that's where we're shooting for. It's just a little bit beside the... uh, flight path and that's where we're aiming. I like to say the scenario is that's where uh, um, I'm taking my passenger who wants to do some fresh water tests on the quality of the uh, wetlands in Florida and uh, that's where we're at. Now you should be able to see the lake and you could see what we're aiming for. There's a like almost like a satellite body of water. It's connected by a small passage to the rest of the lake. We're gonna land uh, in that um, area right there. Should be right in front of you if you've made your flight corrections um, properly. I am also throttling back and I'm starting a very slow descent. Now you can see that waterway as it feeds into the uh, to the lake Um, and it it goes sort of like across this sort of land bridge. We're going to be left of that. So uh, east of that little land bridge there. So if you're following the waterway you're gonna land east of that little waterway on that land bridge I'm about uh, 3,000 feet descending and I'm still about 95 miles an hour 95 knots at 2,000 still continuing to descend I'm left of that land bridge now, and I'm at 1,000 continuing to descend, and I'm roughly uh, 90 miles an hour. I have pulled the throttle back and I'm about 80 miles an hour, I'm below 1,000 feet. I'm just flying by eye right now, uh, going over the trees and uh, looking forward uh, picking my spot uh, where I'm gonna do my water landing. You are uh, right over the wetlands right now, and uh, that's like a marsh area down to 70 miles an hour. Pulling my throttle back even more. It's just stunning. Yeah, you can put uh, scenery packs on other flight simulators and stuff. And there's a lot more to flying than uh, just buildings. I'm at about 500 feet. And you can see the water start to come into view, waves of the water. I'm just holding my nose up, just trying to have nice level of light. You can actually see the blinking light reflecting off the water we're just going to let the plane, plane kind of land itself now you can really make out the detail of the water about at uh, 55 miles an hour I'm going to pitch up a little bit. On the water and I'm actually turning the aircraft towards that break. So now we're kind of heading due east. And uh, I pulled the mixture back, the mixture I just had up, just barely, pulled the throttle and the mixture back, the engine has stopped, and we are now adrift in Lake Okeechobee, clear waters ahead of us, and it's just spectacular. Take an external view and take a look around and enjoy what no other simulator on the market is going to show you. Alright, take your time and when you're ready to take off, go ahead and re engage the podcast and we'll do a takeoff, water takeoff. I'm going to put mixture up just a hair, throttle up just a hair, and start the engine. Putting flaps on one, bringing up the throttle. Air speed at 60. I'm going to slightly lift the yoke and we are airborne. Put my flaps up. Now I'm just heading towards the magenta flight path indicator. I'm at about 2,000 feet. My flaps are up. My engines are at full throttle. I'm uh, going at about uh, 80 knots. And as I get close to that magenta line, I'm going to go ahead and turn in a southerly direction. And uh, we're going to get ready. We're going to stay around between two and 3,000. And uh, we're going to get uh, ready for landing. And as you approach Palm Beach Glades, um runway's gonna be a little bit to your left. Just kinda dog left, dog leg until you get it lined up and start your approach. And there we go. Nice easy touchdown. Try to hit it at about 60 miles an hour, applying my brake. you can just stop it on the runway or you can go all the way to parking the airport's a little bit strange but uh (laughs) anyway you have made it and uh i hope you liked this flight sim adventure and uh this program was a long one i'm gonna look at uh, alternate r in the next few minutes and uh know just about 70 frame uh, per second and uh, the average frame weight was uh, uh, 65.5 and um, GPU usage is at 99% that's exactly where you want it to be and uh, because the GPU is powering a lot of the visual, of all the visual aspects of this sim and other aspects of this sim as well. So, um, <clears throat> go ahead and cut off engine right at the edge of the runway where you would never cut off the engine. But, uh, yeah, I didn't want to go in that marsh. <laughs> I don't know where you park. I guess, oh, well, there's a lane there, and then you I guess you take it all the way back for parking. But uh, I'm not that familiar with this airport. I'll try to do more research about stuff like that when, as, as we go. But uh, anyways, it was, like I said, a feature-rich program. It's going to be just close to the three-hour mark. I hope you guys had a good time. I had a great time. We'll talk about the technical aspects of of, uh, settings and and GPU usage and all that kind of stuff um, when we get together again, which will be very, very soon. Take care of yourselves and take care of each other. And great flying. Bye for now.